should be back next month and then uh, I shall return to Amravati uh, in April so this is uh, this is the general plan <coughs> and this year 2006 I I'll be going to South Africa, to Portugal, to Thailand, and to Egypt. <laughs> and I do all this traveling without touching any money whatsoever. And so, and I look at my life as a Buddhist monk, it's been uh, quite a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a miracle in a way. I think I've lived in, in Britain nearly 30 years, and I've never used English money. <laughs> <clears throat> So when I think of uh, how the Buddha, you know, the original, the historical Buddha established the, the monastic uh, Sangha 2,500 years ago in, in, in ancient India, and then of how it still operates, still functions within the reasonable boundaries of its original form, it, it gives you a it gives a, me a very kind of, it inspires me in fact that, that the wisdom behind establishing a form that can last so long and still, <clears throat> after 2,500 years, still be uh, so clear a teaching where it hasn't been corrupted or, or changed beyond all recognition. And of course that's, because the Buddha was pointing to uh, a reality rather than to particular cultural uh, qualities. Uh, 
or cultural attitudes. The establishment, say the, the first sermon that he gave after his enlightenment of, on the Four Noble Truths where uh, dukkha or suffering is, is the first noble truth. So this is, this is just the same, isn't it? Whether it's uh, ancient India, I imagine, is pretty much the same experience. Whether, or modern Europe in 2006. And whether it's uh, Indian people or Europeans or whatever, is dukkha, the noble truth, is, 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 it hasn't changed whatsoever as the experience that that we all have as human beings, no matter what culture or uh, what age we happen to be living in. Because these are, you know, cultures change and, and uh, there's, there's all kind of different, you know, from... Uh, ancient republics and kingdoms and empires to modern democratic systems, socialist systems uh, and the different qualities and and emphasis changes. So these are the condition, the conditioned uh, these are the sankharas or the conditions that are in this endless process of change. Then they, uh, in order to recognize, <clears throat> it's that awakening state when you, when you wake up and recognize there is suffering. So that's, uh, that's the insight into the first noble truth. When you, when you admit that you're suffering, that there is this suffering. Without, <clears throat> you know, seeking to blame it on someone else or, uh, because of, uh, you know, on the your parents or the society or the or because you're poor or misunderstood or anything like that. This suffering is about human suffering that is a, a common bond we all share. <clears throat> so if this were um, emphasized more, the first noble truth, I think many of the problems in that we face now uh, would would tend to diminish because we have a, a recognition of a common human experience, <clears throat> whether it's in uh, the uh, Islamic world or the Israeli or the uh, Christian or the atheists, the Europe, third world countries or <clears throat> modern superpowers or whatever. Let's say we're all brothers and sisters in suffering. We all experience the suffering. So that's pointing to the common bond that that we share with those from ancient India, from time of the Buddha, to to all you know the human beings that have existed in the past in Asia, Europe, North and South America. Africa, Australia, wherever. 
Now what does that do to your to your sense of, you know, when you when you just reflect like this and think about this, you feel a sense of compassion and and a sense of brotherhood and uh, sympathy, empathy with humanity in general. At least I do. When I think about race or preferences or cultural conditioning or ages, ancient or modern or third world or superpower or or African or European or whatever, then then there's various, uh, then these become, there's certain cultural biases, uh, certain prejudices, attitudes, and all that that we've acquired. <clears throat> Preferences, choices, and all the rest. So contemplating this, you recognize that the Buddha pointing to all conditioned phenomena as impermanent, all conditioned phenomena as not self, is a skillful means that uh, pointing at a reality that when you, you know, the the different when we talk about the qualities of conditioned phenomena, then we then we get mesmerized by our own preferences, what we like or don't like, and what's considered right or wrong or good or bad, what should or shouldn't be. What's moral and immoral? What's kind and what's cruel? And then that whole realm, the dualistic realm, manifests and then we take sides. So you you think of the Islamic, uh, what they call here in Britain, the Islamic terrorists. Or we put this word terrorist on because it makes them sound like hideous monsters, you know, evil people that are out to destroy and harm us. But I'm sure that these people are doing it in a righteous way. They feel they're right and we're wrong and we feel we're right and they're wrong. So who's right and who's wrong? So then right and wrong, you know, the, we, we uh, contemplate this, that right and wrong are divisions. It's a dualism. If you have right and, and you attach to what is right or what you believe is right, what you feel definitely is right, then on the condition plane, if the conditions aren't right, aren't in alignment with what you think is right, then they're wrong. So this, you create this division. This is all through language, conception, conditioning of the mind. <clears throat> so the, the Buddha pointed to awareness, mindfulness, rather than righteousness. So the awareness, mindfulness, is, is, the, is the only possibility that a human individual has of of not being caught in the divisions of right and wrong, good and bad. So contemplating this over many years, uh, 
being brought up in in the States as a Christian, you know, I'm very much conditioned, culturally conditioned to righteousness, right and wrong, good and evil. So the condition of my mind, thinking mind, say that has developed <clears throat> from the uh, cultural conditioning, from the religious conditioning, uh, before discovering Buddhism, was very much a, a, a conditioning of the mind, sense of our religion is right, uh, our culture, our country, our democracy, democracy is right, communism is wrong. <laughs> That's what I was told anyway. Just a matter. I was a university student during the McCarthy era in the 50s, in early 50s in, in the States. And, and I've always tended towards, um, towards the more left side of the political spectrum. And so, uh, you know, I've always preferred these more, the more, I've always, I was quite interested in communism and socialism and, and, and these, these words that were considered at the time to be wrong. You know, in the early 50s, during the McCarthy period, it was a very heavy time in the United States where, where uh, you know, you had to be 100% all-American, uh, red, white, and blue, star-spangled banner boy. Otherwise, you could be ostracized or, or punished or your, your life could be made incredibly difficult if you were even suspected of sympathy or that with anything called communism. So the way to destroy anybody's career at that time, the early 50s, was to say they were communists, even if they weren't. And that would almost automatically destroy their possibilities for, you know, if they were in professional, profession, many actors and people in the film industry, their careers were destroyed just through these kind of accusations. But during the Second World War, when I was a child, uh, the, the Soviet Union was the ally. And so it was quite confusing. During, during the, you know, the, the, I was about 11 or 12 when the war ended. And so I'd been very much influenced by all the propaganda uh, that existed in the in the uh, cinema and the movies and and the radio and so forth in the states at that time. So the communists, the Russians were were hero heroic figures. Stalin was a was a friend, and uh, <laughs> all the Russian fighters were noble. You know they were. They were our friends, our allies. And so, you know, I thought, you know, I was quite impressed from, the, from that age, you know, from the, I was about seven when the war started, when the Americans entered the war anyway, and, and about 
11 when it ended. That's a very impressive time, you know. And then immediately, uh, not, a, not only a, a few days after the end of the war, suddenly the Russians were the enemy. Now, this is, a, this is kind of, you know, mental gymnastics. But when you're a kind of innocent boy, you know, you, you don't quite get it. How can suddenly these great heroic figures become your worst enemies overnight? So, I remember feeling very confused and doubtful at the time because it, you know, it didn't seem right what was happening and yet what, what, you know, what did I know? And, but the, I think it was, I can trace a sense of doubt and, and mistrust of the adult world beginning at that age. <laughs> <clears throat> It's in the the teenage, in the you know the fifteen sixteen period, when when the the tendency to question everything, including Christianity and the values of your parents and society and class, became began to be more active. Up till then, it was more or less, you know, you just went along with it. What whatever they told you, the authorities, the teachers, the parents, the priests. Uh, they knew, and so you just, at least I would just go along with it, never question it. Then in, in the adolescence, of course, the questioning started. When I started questioning, what is, what is doubting, what is questioning skepticism do? It makes you feel very insecure. Because there's a security, a sense of security in, in knowing what's right in the affirmations of the group, of the clan, of the tribe, of the, you know, that you all agree that ours is right, we're the best, uh, we're good, and those others are the bad ones. They're the evil forces and the wrong ones. The savages, not the civilized. Uh, where democracy is good, communism is bad. America stands for everything that is good and noble and and fair in human consciousness. And Soviet Union is everything bad and evil. <laughs> so I was asking Tita Mehta the other day what it was like growing up in the Soviet Union. She said... It was very nice growing up there. <laughs> As a, you know, one is expecting to say, oh, it was just, I was just so persecuted and treated so badly. Then in uh, becoming a Buddhist monk, one carries this tendency, you know, preferences into, uh, you know, Buddhism. So uh, before I came across Theravada, I was very much, my main 
my the stimulus for my interest, the kind of awakening, was through the uh, Japanese Zen style that was uh, quite quite the fashion in the mid-50s in the United States. So Zen and Beat Zen and Alan Watts and all that was, was the kind of initial uh, input and the thing that 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 uh, kind of awakened me to uh, to the uh, wonder of Buddhism. And the thing that, <clears throat> that attracted me, obviously, was because I was caught in in this realm of doubt and skepticism, which is quite an unpleasant state of mind, because it leaves you, you know. You know, just be, never being sure what is right, what is wrong, and and where <clears throat> you no longer trust all the values and the conditioning of your parents, of your religion, of your society. That used to give a sense of stability and security to one, where you you knew, you know, you could say who's right, and they would say we're right. And then we, we kind of accepted that, and so you had a, a sense of security, of belonging to the right side, the good ones, the best. But when that starts, when one becomes suspicious or skeptical of all that, then there's a tendency to want to look for something, and and then one uh, uncovers things and questions even more. You become even more skeptical. And, and even more cynical about uh, the things that before stood for, you know, what's good and right, you suddenly see is, is you see through terms of being quite hypocritical, dishonest. So that kind of bitterness and and uh, that arises in the in the mind. The thing that attracted me in Buddhism was the fact that that the Buddha seemed to allow this doubting ability. You know, he encouraged not to just accept things on hearsay. The famous Kalama Sutta, you know, the kind of amazing Sutta in the in the Pali Canon where. The Buddha, you know, advises the Kalamas not you know, not to accept anything just on what what the priests say or what your parents say or the values of the time. Or it goes on there about nine things, you know, and it kind of touches everything that that you, you've been told you should trust. So, like, like in Bhabdi, you should believe what the priest says, what the Pope says, what your mother and father say, what the society says is right and wrong, what Christianity says is right and wrong, and you just never question. You're not supposed to doubt that. And then, uh, and the Buddhists encourage us to doubt all this, to doubt it, and to find out for ourselves, to know for ourselves. Well, how do you know for yourself if you're still, you know, if you if you're still working on the intellectual level, all you're doing is is maybe rejecting one group and taking sides with another. You're still caught in the division of thought of dualism. 
So instead of being an all-American boy, become a communist. As a rebellion, just take the other side. And so many people did, you know. People became kind of disillusioned with uh, here in Britain with the with the the um, situation here or in the United States, and then went over to the communists, and and then they became disillusioned with the communists. So there was, you know, one is just, you know, if one is just changing one side. Uh, that doesn't really resolve the problem because the dualism is all about the, the conditioned world which is changing, which has no stability in itself anyway and which doesn't, it can't be absolutely good but can only be relatively good and then change. How can you keep, you know, your government or your society or even the, the religious conventions in a kind of static state of goodness, they change. And you can see in, in uh, the development of Buddhism in 2,500 years how it, it, you know, how it changed and how it, people had faith and then lost faith, how it was persecuted and almost destroyed, how it would revive on the conventional level, you know, of the, of this, and then how it, 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 you know, from the kind of original Buddhism of the Lord Buddha then developing into the various other sects, the Mahayana, Hinayana, and onward into the Nichiren and the Vajrayana and modern trends uh, of, you know, modern Buddhism, British Buddhism, American Buddhism, And then, then we can be so against even titles that we don't want to call it Buddhism anymore. Call it Vipassana. Or Zen. Now, I remember in the States, the people that were just saying, we have nothing to do with Buddhism, but we, we, we're Zenists. And then I see that happening in Theravada. We do Vipassana, but we're not Buddhists. So, you know, take Vipassana, Zen... Because, but even Vipassana is still a condition, isn't it? And Zen, you know, you, you kind of align, align yourself with, we practice meditation. So whatever you grasp, whatever you take sides with, no matter how high-minded or, or coarse it might be, or, or how, how, you know, modern or old-fashioned or right or wrong, whatever, it's still, you know, there's, you know there, there's still this sense of, this, you know, suspicion, doubt, uh, disappointment, disillusionment, seems to be the, the natural state of grasping any convention whatsoever. When you're looking for the perfect teacher or the perfect group or whatever that and then you you know you find somebody will you know will find the perfect teacher and then grasp that this is the perfect teacher and then who will never disappoint me will never fail me so then the teacher you know later on they might be disillusioned with the teacher's behavior or the teacher gets old and dies and then you say disappoint me you 
teacher died. I've seen people do that. Yeah. I had such faith in you, and then you died, and <laughs> so then what what the you know the Buddha wasn't pointing to any condition but uh, pointing to the here and now so so the liberation the um the the transcending of the dualism, the uh, the deathless reality, the unconditioned can only be now, because that's all there is. When you really contemplate your own life, you know you you remember your past, but it, but that those memories of uh, of your past are always arising in the present. The experience is now. Breathing is now. You remember breathing yesterday. But now you're breathing. You're still breathing. Breathing is now. Sitting is now. Standing, walking, lying down. Whatever you're doing. Whatever you're thinking. uh, Whether it's memories of the past or planning for the future. It's all happening now. Experience is now. So that's what mindfulness is all about, is opening, recognizing, realizing now. How do you do that? Well, you should first kind of uh, do this, and then when you've really done this and developed, then you do the stage B, and then and then... Then as you get more familiar with stage B, then stage C, which will bring you closer to the now. And and then take a retreat at Amravati, 10-day retreat, and maybe you might actually recognize the now. If you, but you need, it's a, it's a long, arduous process. Goes in stages. And so then you, and quite well, you know, you think, but that, but if it's now, what, what's the problem? Because <laughs> if you consider that tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, then you'll, you'll, you'll be here and now, that's, you're getting very complicated and confused in your mind. It just is nonsense, isn't it? So, the, this, what we, what, I, what we refer to as mindfulness, or in Pali, sati, sampatanya, awareness. I use these words, mindfulness, awareness, the, the same thing. Uh, then the sampatanya is is uh, is like intuitive awareness, like in intuition. Uh, when you have a, an intuitive moment, isn't it? It's embracing now. You you can't you don't have intuitive moments tomorrow. It's always about now. And when we use the the word intuition, you know, you have something in you is open to 
the way it is now that's intuitive. And maybe you can't describe that intuition. When you when people that are highly intuitive, when you try to get them to explain what what it is, they often say, you know, it's very confusing because because it's not a linear process that you can you know you can describe in in an, an accurately with uh, accurately with words. It's a more like a feeling or a a sense. And the more you try to figure out what mindfulness is, the further away you are from it. You say, what exactly is mindfulness? And and then, what does the Pali dictionary say uh, mindfulness is? And how do I get mindful? And and that kind of thing. We 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 make it into something where mindfulness is 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 very simple. Because if you were never mindful, you'd be dead by now. I mean, it's it's basic to survival. <laughs> but but the problem lies is that we are identified with all our conditions and with our memories, with our bodies. With we've we've added, we've created so many identities around. Uh, memory and cultural conditioning, the bodies we have, the cultural conditioning, that we don't even know what's happened. We just have become a person, a separate entity, uh, uh, you know, a certain type. Uh, We align ourselves, we prefer, we identify with various tendencies or attitudes or Opinions. But in intuitive awareness, then suddenly we're aware, we're, we're recognizing this sense of maybe just not knowing, of being confused, of what is mindfulness. What, how do you become mindful? Just that asking the question and recognizing the not knowing. Because mindfulness isn't a matter of knowing about something, but recognizing the way it is, recognizing now, not as anything in particular, not defined or described, but as the reality of of knowing now is this way. So it, it's an embracing. It embraces both the right and wrong, good and bad. Now, language itself is is always about division. Now, just contemplate, you know, just contemplate your own thinking process and language because we're, we're so attached, so committed to our ideas, our views, our own language. But when you notice any language, no matter what language it is, it's about, you know, Right, wrong, good, and bad, male and female, should, shouldn't. Um, you know, it's it's it's, and that's the way it moves. 
there's red and then there's blue and there's white and black and there's male and female and there's, uh, there's right and wrong and it goes on endlessly into into all kinds of permutations and variations or, but endlessly complicated it gets more and more complicated the conditioned realm goes from from the moment now into into you know two and it multiplies and, and gets into incredible complicated web network that is you know which absolutely boggles the human consciousness because human consciousness you know we're not God so we can't know everything about everything now God knows everything about everything all at one moment so try to try to try to do that see if you you know what it'd be like to know everything about everything in the universe as one human individual sitting here in the Dharma hall <laughs> it would be you know it's beyond <laughs> beyond imagination <clears throat> just having a few negative thoughts at this moment is confusing enough <laughs> of your own you know But intuitively, then, then this isn't a, this isn't divisive. There's no division. It's unitive. Because intuition isn't isn't it doesn't divide, but it it's the the ability that we all have to receive the way it is now from the position we're in. So I'm in this position, sitting here in this high seat now. And what re, what I'm receiving at this moment, both from internally, you know, the, or externally, the things that impinge on the senses from outside, and what what's going on inside, you know, that that uh, the feeling in the body, or the the uh, mood, or state of mind. And so it's a the this uh, is. A knowing, it's like this, and it's beyond, you can't describe it. Once you try to describe it, it just, you know, you, you're trying to define it, put, put everything into, into, uh, fix it with one kind of, just, uh, you know, a word, uh, that, that we create, define it with, with language. Where it doesn't need defining, it's just recognizing, realizing. How do you recognize and realize the present moment? Not through trying, but through opening. So that's where in uh, encouraging meditation practice, encouraging attitude, not of trying to get something or, or attain something, but to open, receive, pay attention, into this, and this is more like a relaxed state of being aware. Because once you start trying to be aware, 
then you've conceived the idea of awareness, and then you're trying to get something that you've conceived in your brain. And you'll never, you know, you'll always, you know, you're, you're deluding yourself because that you don't see what you're doing. Where if you relax, open, observe, listen, pay attention now. On the level of your intellect, you, 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 the intellect doesn't like this. It always wants to, to define. You know, it's, used, it's that part of us, the, the intellectual part, wants to, to put everything in neat categories, which in, you know, are defined according to right and wrong, good and bad, A, B, C, one, two, three. So that function of thought, you know, I'm not against thinking, but trying to put thinking in its proper uh, relationship to this moment. Thinking then is more like a useful tool rather than uh, something that one is uh, bound into. You know, before I, I practiced meditation, I had any insight, I was my thoughts. I was definitely my thoughts. I was uh, obsessed with thinking. So the thinking would just go on and on and on. And I was uh, very strongly identified with the thoughts, with the memories. There was, there was no way to kind of get outside it. It seemed like one was just obsessed, you know, had developed certain patterns uh, of thinking that seemed to go on and on. And even if they... You didn't like them. They, they still, that's what you were stuck with. You're kind of like a victim of the conditioning process. Then in, in the meditation, I began to get, question that. Not through uh, thinking, but through beginning to trust and recognize the value of awareness of opening, of receiving, of paying attention. No longer, and observing the tendency to want to figure it out and define it. <clears throat> so in the, <clears throat> using suffering as a, as a kind of, the first noble truth, because it is that, isn't it? It's, it's like using something quite ordinary. It's not high. It's not abstract. It's not kind of something that only you know, like poor people suffer, but rich people don't. Or it's not due to poverty or anything like that. Suffering is a common common bond, you know, even the from the good to the to the bad people, the privileged people, the underprivileged <laughs> no matter how privileged you are, you still suffer. In this way, this this feeling of of lack, of something wrong, of worry. You know, if you wealthy people are caught into obsessions around uh, 
you know, people want, if you're rich, then people want your money. Who can you trust? Who's your real friend? Because everybody knows you're rich and, and they want, you know, and they, everybody wants some of that. <laughs> so there's suffering, isn't there, in being rich. Who can you trust? So then trusting is, in, in this sense, is not in, in, uh, in any, in, not in a belief, but in recognizing, opening, seeing, knowing. So these are the words then that the Buddha encouraged us when the awareness, sati and sampajanya, sati and panya, wisdom, So then, with intuitive awareness, the wisdom is, uh, is uh, we're open to wisdom, to universal wisdom. Which is not dualistic. So, like, like wisdom allows us to, it discerns things, knows things as they are. It's like this. So when, when I use the word, it's like this, or they use words like suchness or as isness. These, these, these kind of, these don't make sense really in, in a logical mind, as is or the way it is. When, when I use the word the way it is, some people think I'm just being fatalistic, you know, well, that's the way it is, so what? What can you do about it? The world's like this, it's a bad deal, you know, just have to live with it. The way it is, what can I do? <laughs> and that's not it. That's 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 the negative state, isn't it? It's like resigning myself to misery. That's the way it is. So just shut up. <laughs> or that's the way it is. Is is a way of reminding oneself that. that you know, conditioned phenomena is like this, is the way it is, it's like this. Right now, the, 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 uh, the intuitive awareness is like this, with these conditions, you know, affecting me. The Dharma Hall, Saturday night, uh, you know, the, the um, physical body, the way it is, it's like this. Now, reflecting in this way, my there's this thing that opening. It's it's not. I'm not trying to to describe how it is anymore. So it's it's just trusting in this awareness. It's discerning. You know, certainly, you, you know, there's the discernment, but it's not discernment. Isn't a critical function. It's not, a, you know, saying something's right and wrong, but it's discerning. It's like this. Conditions, you know, from the, from the receiving out through the, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, like this. 
And then in this way of, of receiving and discerning, you recognize the knowing is like is you know that you you recognize or realize this this is the real refuge in just this state of awareness. It's now. It's not created. It's not like a state that I'm that I've created or dependent on conditions. So it's open to all conditions, good, bad, right, wrong. It's not critical, so it's not it's not condemning or preferring. But if there is tendency to condemn or prefer, it's it's receiving that also. It's receiving the way it is. So learning to to accept even even the tendencies to prefer or make judgments to like or dislike, love or hate like this. So it's, it's not where, say, if, if, if I'm back into the critical mode, then I say, uh, a good bhikkhu should love people, not hate anyone. And then, then you start feeling guilty if you hate somebody, right? <laughs> so you get caught in trying to become a good bhikkhu that loves everybody, and then then when you when you don't when you hate somebody then you feel guilty about it. But if your refuge is in awareness, then loving hating is like this. It's receiving everything equally. It's metta, in other words. When we talk about loving kindness or metta practice, that's what. Metta is, it's non-judgmental. When you spread metta, you spread it to the to the demons and the Lord of Death and the Devas and you know the good ones, the bad ones, everything. And what does that do? Just uh, uh, intellectually, metta isn't 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 about preference. But it's it's a way of receiving all conditioned phenomena, neither following it with with a judgment, you know. So even uh, the devils are the angels, the extremes, heaven and hell, the good and the bad. So then, the reality of that is oneness. It's one because it's you. You know, in the, the reality of this moment is one. It's not two. To when I start thinking, then it's then I'm dividing into, I'm this person here, and I'm separate from you. But if I'm just in the, in, uh, trusting in awareness, that sense of division isn't. I'm not creating it. And this is discerned, recognized. This is the liberation from suffering. Because in this, it's a natural state of being. It's not, not a, something I create through kind of concentration practices and, and manipulating my mind. It's just letting go of everything and opening, receiving.
life in whatever way it's presenting itself toward this formation at this time. So discerning non-suffering is like this. And then when when you, and, and so it's recognizing, like Third Noble Truth is actually the recognition of this reality. It's real. It's a fact. It's, it's not something, it's not kind of, it's not idealistic. It's not a kind of abstract idea of liberation from all suffering. It can be just some very high-minded ideal. You know, it'd be nice to be liberated from all suffering. Everybody says, yes, tell me how to do it. <laughs> and then, you know, there'd be it's a lovely ideal. But it's also a fact, a reality. It's real. And... This is where the panya or the the wisdom factor is discerning reality is this sankaras are what they are. You know, they're impermanent. So you're not looking for reality in sankaras anymore because you know that you'll never find it. <laughs> so you're discerning this is, you know, is a natural state of being, recognizing. And then as that recognition, through recognition or realizing, then, then uh, it's a matter of, in one's lifetime, of cultivating this. Or what we call pawana, or the the fourth noble truth, the way of non-suffering. So say in, in my own life as a monk, you know, cultivating or, it sounds like something you have to do, you know, developing, these are the words that they use for bhavana. But it's, it's more like remembering this. Note it when you forget and get lost and go back into into your realm of suffering and self and and uh, the the kind of worldly conditions take you over even though even though I might get lost in that for a while there's something once you've had that insight that you, you know you take it for so and suddenly you, you re- recognize it again so more and more you trust in it, then then your tendency to to be taken over by the world starts diminishing. As you know, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, it's pointless. And and uh, you know why why live in a world of misery when you don't have to? <laughs> You know, the, the escape from suffering, the escape hatch is, or the gate to the deathless is awareness. So mindfulness, path to the deathless, apamado amatapadang in Pali, apamado mindfulness, 
heedfulness is the way to the deathless. Amata, amata is the deathless padang pa. Pamado machano padang. This is the Dhammapada. Pamado is heedlessness, not being here and now, being, is the way to death. So death is all about heedlessness. So one of the heedless things is to 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 identify with your body because it, the body's going to die. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know the thing. You know this is what it's supposed to do. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. There's nothing wrong with it. <clears throat> but if in heedlessness, then we think oh, it's my body and I'm dying and I'm old, you know, and a few years old die, and because the body's aging and will die. But the deathless, upamadoa matabadang, mindfulness is the deathless reality. So then it's in recognizing this, this natural state of being. It's, uh, you know, it's not, and, and that's what, what I encourage in, 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 in all of you to, to, uh, this is something you have to, you know, you, it, it's something you recognize within yourself, you know, it's not something that I and someone else can do for you, that I can even convince you. It's, uh, I'm not trying to convince you, but encourage. Because it's a matter of learning to trust yourself in this awareness. Don't trust yourself in your opinions and views. Because opinions and views are conditioned. So what you think and what you believe in and your preferences and prejudices and don't believe any of it. Don't don't make a problem about it. But uh, what when as I say trust yourself, I don't mean you know your personality, but recognizing this natural state is like Lumpur Chana called it our real home. It's like you're returning to your real home. This is a natural state. It's not it's not an artificial condition that that uh, you're creating a kind of false illusion that is going to, you know, depends on on uh, all kinds of other things to keep it going. This is this is natural state. One, not two. And it's real. It's not an abstract ideal. So on this note, you should all be perfectly enlightened by now and I'll stop.